This is Aliens and Artists Part 2 with Anonymous Experiencer 2. I'm Stuart Davis. If you missed Part 1, become a patron or a pluser by clicking the link in the show notes and let life swaddle you like a chinchilla-lined cocoon on this episode. Hey, can we reverse engineer oysters now? Because I found an oyster shell. So we should be able to do that now, right? (sighs) Also, hot, non-human takes on human development in the immortal words of P. Hilton. That's hot. That's hot. And also, reality is not broken, but our reality-ometer might be. Also, and as well, to parenting from the causal down or up but well it's definitely not sideways but first as experiencers how do we best love one another into greater freedom in this crazy house of mirrors yeah and especially since it'll go on forever right like you have a child you're always going to be born into story you know that will never not happen so that's, that is the fundamental human condition that we will always be born. We will always have to move through this story structure, you know, cause I think about that even it's, it's interesting as a parent, like what does it mean even how I parent, which is I think kind of the same thing you're saying, you know, whether you parent one person or the planet, <laughs> um, it's sort of what it is. It's like, how do you then relate to people who are in the story structure. And what I, like so far, what I feel just in the personal level beyond what it may mean for broader communication, it's almost more just like pointing out. I just sort of feel like, I mean, if someone's in a good story, it's one thing, but when someone's in like a neurotic story, that would stress me out. I just feel like calmer about pointing out, well, here's like an example. So my daughter has learning differences. So she, a little boy took advantage of her at school. So he sold her a candy bar for $10. When she realized, you know, he had taken advantage of her, she went back and asked him to give her her money back and he, he wouldn't. So she came home and I was really mad just that, you know, basically human beings suck. But instead of doing anything about it I just sort of went into that causal space and had a conversation with the little boy and I was just like you don't want to be that person you don't want to be a person who takes advantage of people so it's like if this is really something you want to learn and you want to do better on I'd love to see you correct this mistake (laughs) the next day he wrote my daughter this long email about like how what he did was wrong. So at first he's, you know, he was like, what I did was wrong. He's like, so if you buy me a candy bar, so bring back a candy bar, I'll give you your $10 back. And so she told me that and I'm like, that's perfect. That's great. That's just, you know, I'm glad he acknowledged it. And then like two hours later, he was like, you know, what I did was just so wrong. When you come to school, I'm just going to give you your money. <laughs> I feel like it. it's like, that's sort of it. It's almost like you just go into that causal space and just communicate to the person's soul directly and let them do their own work. And at the same time, it's like none of my business, you know, whether he was going to do the work or not do the work, I don't get to control that. I just can control the conversation in that causal space, soul to soul. 
That's a fascinating strategy, behavior modification from the causal to the gross, signaling upward to the frontal structure of the personality. It reminds one of the way non-humans seem to signal from the imaginal or the subtle, the collective unconscious. Take nuclear weapons. What does it mean when they disarm our nukes? One way to read it would be as a signal from our human collective unconscious, just as you conveyed to that boy, you don't want to be that person who takes advantage of other people. Some non-humans seem to signal from causal and subtle realms as well, including the message, you don't want to be that species, a species that incinerates a paradise world. Is that the story you want to choose? Annihilating paradise with a penis-shaped death weapon. That's not who you are. I love how you authorize the autonomy of the boy in question in that dynamic with a loving reminder. How does love behave? If you wake up from the dream, you don't just go up in everyone's grill screaming, the dream is bullshit. You're, you're asleep. You do something like you did, sending deep loving reminders when possible. And then it's up to the recipient to change behavior or not. Yeah, yeah. It's no guarantee. Everyone still has agency. Everyone's still in the dream and everyone still has the right to fuck up. And that's like part of it too. It's just because that's what I could. This was like a conversation I was having with them yesterday. Of when I started, first started having mystical experiences in my 20s, I sort of made these like little promises to myself. You know, one was like, I didn't want to talk about anything that was happening until I felt like confident. I didn't want to get into the look at me, I'm so special, these things are happening to me trap. And then two, it's like, I, wanted to have a kind of like scientific process where I wanted some validation that things were real. So I didn't get into like all the magical trap where I'm like, it's interesting now because it's like a good first step that sort of wanting gross reality validations, because it does help you shift out of that magical thinking. And that is a developmental stage there they love all the integral stuff. They're like, so much of that really is so true and so grounded. And there is definitely like pre-trans confusion, all of that. But they're like, there is a point then that you have to leave wanting gross reality validation because the system is just so much more complex than that. So it's, it's never going to be a simple cause and effect that you're always going to be able to get validation or replicability. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, it's, it's a good first step to take to want that kind of validation, but th then you have to leave it because you just have to trust that the brain in here cannot comprehend the complexity. So you have to let go of the brain in here and trust the universal brain that can hold the complexity. This is a piece. This piece can't hold the whole. It's necessary but insufficient. So many experiencers have this profound sense of anticipation that something is coming. They live with an ineffable sense of expectation. It's palpable, urgent, but also nebulous and in flux in the sense of doubleness, a la Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. 
So they can sometimes feel like they're trying to describe something that has yet to arrive or reify. Some of that sensitivity seems to be obtained through the anatomy of the causal body or the subtle body, our fully human anatomy. I think what you're relating this causal dimension of your life as an experience or helps bring shape to how this stuff can work in day-to-day life, what we can do with these capacities of our deeper self. There's a funny paradox in there. These potentials are universal, but they never manifest the same way twice. So you can't just push repeat. It is available to each, but it's unique how it happens each time. I really appreciate hearing you talk about it. Yeah, it feels, uh, this was good. Uh, This was like the first time I feel like I talked about it. It felt like it came easy. Like I wasn't sure. Can I even find words for this? You know? Yeah, it's that Zen axiom. You have to say something. It's ineffable, but we're impelled to try and give it voice out of love and curiosity. And it doesn't have to be all serious. A A lot of this is funny. Like we're doing gymnastics to embody and convey the mystery, you know? experience or life can be quite funny. Oh, it's taught. It's honestly, it's like what I've been doing so much too. It's like all so funny. I mean, but I think again, when you get into that causal space, a part of where like the relief of it all is again, the planet is a masterpiece, but it's like the same way. If the Mona Lisa were to burn in a fire, it's not the end of the world, right? If this planet were to die, it's not the end of the world because that causal space is so big. It's like, and when you really know that is the fundamental truth, this is a masterpiece. It's worth saving. We should do everything we can to do it, but we can unbond. Again, I think that's where the release of that bonding, that sense of desperate survival fear is just gone. Like I'm not even bonded to the planet. I see it for what it is, which is a masterpiece. And it would be insane if you saw a fire down, you know, somewhere else and you were standing next to the Mona Lisa to not pick it up and take it out of the building. But again, it's not desperate. I just, you just, you let go of all that desperation. The entire solar system is engineered so that the sun will expand and swallow all the planets in fire, including the Mona Lisa, if it's still on Earth. It's all built to die in a fire. (laughs) It's not going to go on forever, you know, but it doesn't have to die right now. You know, we don't have to blow it up with a nuclear bomb. The trees don't have to become sinister and start stomping on the ferns. Yeah, the fern will die at some point, too. Yeah, it's a better story when the trees do not become evil (laughs) and murder lesser plants. It brings up this nuance around how we sometimes conflate shitty story structure with story structure, period. There's healthy and sick versions of all of these kinds of stories we grow through in our lives. Take death, for instance. We're inheriting shitty death stories. Death is creative, actually. The notion that death is only termination, that it is merely the end, the end of beauty, love, connection, or existence, when actually death is fundamental to cosmic creativity. It's because of death we have true depth. Yeah. Totally, totally. Well, that's a part of what they were like telling me is like how like how the nervous system works is it brings in, you know, I mean, life and death or pleasure and pain. 
it's where duality is derived. It's creative. It's we create this in order to create, you know, because that's the whole point of like, how do you find something that's more true, more good, more beautiful? Well, you have to split it. And again, our bodies are built. We can't get, it's not happening in their brain. It's literally, we receive the information and we feel it. We experience it's lived you know, creativity is lived literally physically in our bodies. The problem is that we've just, we, so what they say is like, it, it was set up like this because survival at a point mattered. We were figuring out how to survive. Yeah. We've just evolved so beyond figuring out how to survive. And because we've become pathological, Instead of evolving past survival, we've started to evolve more and more complex ways to kill ourselves. That's like the key is like we figured out survival. You know, it was a process when we were first put on this planet. We did have to figure out how to survive. So all of that survival mechanism mattered. But instead of evolving past it, yeah, we, we used our creativity instead of expanding it beyond it, it stayed attached in survival and we just yeah figured out how to kill each other they're like that's the fundamental problem right now yes there it is in a nutshell our inverted relationship to death for 14 billion years the universe has flourished via the complementarity of birth and death as the twins of cosmic creativity but humans are striving to disinherit themselves from half of that cosmic equation. Our death taboo is creatively suicidal. And when we remove death's creativity from reality, we end up with necrophilia, which is what we have now. Attempts to immortalize the personality, which siphons off our deeper registers. You get hints of this in the fetishized obsession with UFOs as dead artifacts, as inanimate objects. That form of necrophilia where the outside forms are stripped of their interiority, and it makes one wonder whether we're allergic to the great within of these anomalous phenomena. It's just nuts and bolts, and we can reverse engineer it, artifacts, data, radar returns, not the inner lives of the beings behind and within the phenomena. Yeah, it's funny because I had asked the question, is it real that aliens have like land i'm like is there a a spaceship that the government has so their answer to that was if the government had a spaceship and they were trying to like reverse engineer it it would be like taking an like an oyster shell and trying to reverse engineer <laughs> the oyster from the oyster shell <laughs> that's the best analogy i've ever heard for reverse engineering yeah, because they're just like how they exist. The hard reality and the living entity are interwoven and you can't understand one without the other. So if there was ever a shell of something that dropped that a human being could pick up, it would be incomprehensible to us. It's just like saying the brain is the mind. The good news is humans can ignore interiors, but I, that doesn't make them go away. Consciousness is origin, not outcome. When you look back on your life so far, 
What's helped you as an experiencer to stay deeply engaged with these mysteries? In integral, for sure. In integral, even when I've loved it or hated it, just is always a touchstone for me. That's probably, I mean, there's obviously pieces of art and music and things like that that have always been like grounding and stuff like that. But if there's like a body of work that I would say has been, I mean, in some ways I feel like the most profound release in some ways is probably the one point that's in most disagreement with Integral, where I'm sort of like, I don't think stage development goes on forever. It's still the map, even if I feel like I found the mistake in the map. It's still the map I was using. The map's still useful because I feel like everyone else is still in the map. It's still there. But now, like what what I feel, because it's like if there's no more stage development, what's left, again, it's just infinite creativity. Let's get spiral, dynamic, integral, geeky for a moment. I've been having this sense of turquoise as poetic fulfillment of purple's promise. So not that turquoise is a correction of purple, but more like cosmic music, where turquoise is a perfect third stacked above purple in the developmental spiral, that the transrational edges of turquoise deliver on the pre-rational promise of purple. They're both whole and complete, but also share a sympathetic resonance developmentally. So you, for instance, You go to the causal body and have a conversation with a kid suggesting he give your daughter back the 10 bucks he duped her out of, and it instantly shifts consensus reality to accord with that intention. That's magic. At any other point in history, that's purple magic. The thing is, the universe is alive, sentient, and teeming with magic. These entities move through walls, compress and dilate time, communicate telepathically, and the meaning they make is cosmocentric. Turquoise is the reenchantment of the real, of the cosmocentric, and it can be as practical as solving daily problems. Turquoise is just magic meeting the universe where it lives. And it is, and I think like where the development piece matters, it's is it's not a magic that's serving my ego. It's not like I've been thinking about this a lot too. I got like into the Sammy culture a little bit ago. And, um, and that's like my, my heritage, you know, is that sort of Scandinavian Norwegian kind of area. And I was like, it's just interesting that indigenous piece of European history was really pretty much annihilated by Christianity So we as Europeans became very separated from our indigenous heritage. And I think that's part of what makes Western culture so out of balance is that we were separated from our indigenous heritage with very few exceptions. I mean, it was like almost, and it's fascinating because I didn't even realize it at first, but Frozen is based on the Sami culture, you know? So like literally the biggest Disney story of all time was actually based on the lost European indigenous culture. So it's like, there's some innate hungering for that piece. Yeah. I feel like that in us is so lost that isn't necessarily lost in other cultures. 
but then like, what's the difference between the turquoise and the matte? Like, what's the point of the development at all if we're just going to end up back at the beginning? And like, I just feel like there's literally a whole set of technological development that's just a part of the fun creativity, you know? And it's just that simple. The indigenous people just didn't have, you know, they, they weren't doing this. The indigenous people wouldn't have designed a computer. And it's just a part of what's fun here on this planet is that whole development of that skill set so that we can just create more complex things. And it's just that easy, you know, and, but when we reconnect it, hopefully we'll be doing it in a way that isn't about creating. I mean, if you look at, so much of what we create, so much of our, it's systems to kill people. Yep. Just stop doing that. When we disown primordial creativity, we end up with biocidic creativity from the war machine to insecticide. We're fundamentally creative for better or worse, healthy, sick, benevolent, malevolent, even more than story creatures. We are creativity creatures. I actually wonder if those words share a common etymological root, creative and creature. I'll find out. So there's no way out of that. And you're right, the amnesia can amplify our rediscoveries in an ironic way. We leave the pre-rational, get our magic memory swiped, erased in the rational, then rediscover magic in the transrational and find the cosmos brimming with life. And then when you rediscover it, you have all of this stuff you've developed, you know, so you have all of these tools so that, you know, you don't have to just cave paint. You know, you can do movies and you can do literature and you can do, you know, complex music. And it's like, that's it. There's, it's not any more complicated than that other than the whole process of development just lets your creativity be cooler than a cave painting. <laughs> you know, there was just a point. It was boring to just cave paint. It was boring to just hit a drum. You can see in the cave paintings themselves, some were attempting movies. There's hints of what's to come. We couldn't help but leave that place because that is what creativity is. Just like a child can't help but learn to walk. Possible to not learn how to walk, you know. It's built in. It's just what it is. So it's just relaxing the system. You know, just relax. It's fine. It's just be creative. We're just over-attached. We're over-bonded. We're too intense about survival and death. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. It really is like we're so afraid of death. If we would just let go of the fear of death, it would just all like... Like the whole system would just like, just ease out. Mm, Yeah. Death is how we inherit the universe. Death is trying to give us the whole cosmos. Immortality is not the fixity of the self. It's the fluidity of self. It's not trapping an ego in amber. It's shedding that chrysalis. What's on the other side of our identity boundary, the rest of the universe. But, you know, we whisper this, these reminders to one another in a million little ways, like you did, suggesting 
to that boy from the causal. Yeah. And Helen was like, even like, so the next day, you know, he gave her the money and she's like the teachers that were like, they could even feel something sort of magical was happening. Helen was just like, the teachers were like, (laughs) what was that about? (laughs) You know? And Helen was just like, Oh, nothing. You know, she's like, it's just between us, you know, but she was like, literally there was like an energy, like everyone could feel everyone felt better. Yeah, that feeling, the mystery is afoot, everything is alive, and no one is speaking to its personhood. But boy, when you do, it speaks back. Totally. And I just think that's so it. It's just like, it's so there, like just waiting. And then we do it, and we call it a miracle, because we do it and then we pop back out of it where it's like, that's literally how this is meant to be all the time. It's just meant to be like this all the time. And the thing is, is like once the system is really sort of back online, those who are learning are still going to be contained then in the system, you know, so we'll be creative. We'll be engaging with our developmental process inside the system of the natural miracle. Fucking A. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done with that world. Hey, Minus listener, there's two kinds of non-duality. Each is neither. And patrons and plusers are both. Become one, and become one with Godhead. Minus listeners are still trifling with lesser gods, beseeching this, petitioning that, while patrons and plusers metaphysically autophilate themselves as form and emptiness. Minus listeners are in a human centipede, with themselves. That's true. Get the absolute right original non-dual god deity. Unminus yourself. To book a one-on-one session with me, click the link in the show notes. To become a member of the Experiencer group, click the link in the show notes. Groping for God. I first experienced the divine when I was a baby. God was a swollen lactating tit. I worshipped at the altar of Areola, a five-pound priest conducting a tactile ritual of suck, drink, suck, drink, puke. It, It nourished me and prepared me for a career in rock and roll. I was one with tit god, enmeshed in a sensual fusion of feeding. I grew bigger and bigger. I thought the holy flow would last forever. But one day, as I attempted to worship the only way I knew how, God scolded me, shouting, Babysitters don't do that, and neither should a ten-year-old boy! (laughs) Then God put a band-aid on her bleeding nipple and filed a report with social services. God hates children with teeth, I realized. And with that, I left the Garden of Eden. How naive I'd been. 
Just because something feeds you doesn't make it God. God is not a vending machine in a bra. No, it's a vending machine on the North Pole that dispenses presents. Santa God lived on top of the world and could fly and did so every Christmas to bring me cool stuff. Santa God gave me a BB gun, which I used to shoot his beautiful creatures. He even signed his gifts to me. But one fateful Christmas, I noticed that Santa God's handwriting was a lot like Mother's. Then it hit me. Mom is elfing Santa. For toys! I confronted her. She denied it. How can I be sure, I demanded. Because there's no such thing as Santa, she blurted out. No! First my tits are taken away and now Santa's fake? What am I supposed to believe in? Jesus Christ! <laughs> they told me at Bible camp, Jesus is God. Well, what's this Jesus guy like, I asked. Jesus is like Santa Claus with tits. <laughs> and Christian boys breastfeed forever. So I joined a fundamentalist church. Light on the fun, heavy on the mental. <laughs> we were forbidden to smoke, drink, or swear. That's fucking fine with me, I thought, as I took a swig of gin and began to masturbate with a lit cigarette. At this stage of my life, I wasn't just horny, I was high school horny. By my freshman year, my pelvis was an alchemical cauldron of unspent seed. I'm not saying I was about to betray my religion, but the night before prom, my mother found 30 pieces of silver in my underwear. Didn't Jesus get a sponge bath from a hooker? I asked a hooker at a bathhouse. She threw my Bible out the stained glass window, then opened my towel like the lost gospel of Judas. I'm going to hell, I thought. Religion is hell, laughed my college buddy Edwin. Edwin was a scientist. Wake up, he rolled his eyes. The Bible is superstitious drivel stitched together by losers with a primitive cosmology. We were partying hard at our fraternity's fall kegger. Edwin regaled me with rationality as he polished off a spicy burrito with a beer bong. Blub, blub, gulp. The only truth that's true is the one that can be empirically proven, Edwin postulated. Prove it, I said. Edwin dropped his pants, lit a Bunsen burner under his ass, and farted. A magnificent blue flame engulfed his posterior, singeing his coin slot before vanishing. Science, he yelled. <laughs> that was marvelous, we cheered, but it was probably beginner's luck, I added. Edwin returned the flame to his crack and shouted, repeatable, empirical, then farted into the flame, perfectly replicating his miniature blue sun. <laughs> Staring at Edwin's charred butthole, I realized I'd found God again. Science was God. 
until I met Samantha and Sabrina, two women's studies majors. They deconstructed my scientific god. Science is a fucking cultural construct, Samantha frowned. Not that we're judging it, okay? Interjected Sabrina. We're totally not judging science. No epistemology is better than any other epistemology, sneered Samantha. I didn't know what an epistemology was, but if it had anything to do with a menage a trois, I wanted to major in it. <laughs> Science is full of patriarchal hierarchies, Samantha clenched her teeth and climbed into the hot tub with me and Sabrina. Sabrina's armpit hair glistened in the moonlight. <laughs> Science is a fucking misogynistic oppression, Samantha chopped. And that's okay, Sabrina added. <laughs> then Sabrina leaned in close to me and whispered, no one's view is any better than anyone else's view, okay? That's the best way to look at it. I leaned in to kiss her then felt the bracing sting of Samantha's hand slap my face. We're lesbians, you fucking pig. <laughs> After college, I went on a meditation retreat where a Zen master told me all beliefs are false. I believe that's true, I said, and became a Zen practitioner. <laughs> true. In meditation, I realized I'm God. Form is relative. Awareness is absolute. I told my wife this when I got home. She said, honey, that's great that you're the absolute, but my relatives are coming over, so I need God to scrub the toilets. God cradled her chin in his benevolent hands and cooed, for you, my love, anything. Then God snuck out the back door and went to Hooters for happy hour. <laughs> There, staring at the swollen breasts of women bringing me food, a reverential feeling swept through my soul. I had it right the first time, I thought. God, God is a boob, and I'm in heaven! That's...
Let's go.